Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In the 1700s, it was very easy to socially scam your way into a living. Certain local parish schemes set up to supposedly mutually benefit those in need and those who could offer an apprenticeship could easily be abused. In a time before computer systems and safeguarding, people could make bank from all sorts of mischievous endeavours which exploited the poor by abusing multiple schemes at once without the authorities knowing. For one household, they fully gamed the system and came up trumps being paid for three apprentices from three different parishes, all of whom didn't know about each other. But the duplicitous nature of the family didn't end there. The girls were exploited, used for free labour and treated so badly that one of them would end up in an early grave. Pair that with a side hustle, which may have just been disposing of babies, and you start to see a picture painted of a desperate and malicious household that would do anything to make money. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the story of Elizabeth Brownrigg, the monster midwife of Fleet Street. And welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with the Silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, then please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and you want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show, Gin and Ghost Stories, where I 
drink gin and tell ghost stories, and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs too. And I also have merch now, so if you want something cool like a hoodie, t-shirt or a mug with a limited edition design on it, the link is in the description too, but be quick because things have been selling really fast and I don't want you to miss out. It's macabrelondon-shop.fourthwall.com. Life in the 1700s was no cakewalk. If you were one of the thousands of children born out of wedlock or to a poor single mother, or both, chances were, if you even made it through your first weeks of life, you would more than likely find yourself in an orphanage under the care of the parish or in a workhouse all of which were schemes set up to basically extrapolate money from destitute children by using them for free labour. Even schemes that were built to try and help people get out of this endless loop of poverty could often be exploited by those looking to make a quick buck. And if you had your head on your shoulders, you could work smart and not hard and collect money for doing absolutely nothing under the guise of caring for a destitute child, which no one would miss if it just so happened to disappear. By the mid-1700s, a higher number of people did genuinely care for those that had been so unfairly treated by society and wanted those on the lower rungs to be properly cared for. But it was still a dog-eat-dog world and with people living hand-to-mouth, it was inevitable that inventive scams would be created to take advantage of this newfound benevolence. One such woman who would use her seemingly charitable nature to her advantage was Elizabeth Brownrigg. Elizabeth Hartley was born in 1720 to a poor family and was put to work as a servant for a family in Goodman's Fields in the East End of London at quite an early age. As a teenager, she was introduced to James Brownrigg, an apprentice plasterer and house painter, and before long, the pair were married. The newlyweds moved to Greenwich, where they lived for five years, and James finished his apprenticeship but continued on as a house painter, and it didn't take long before Elizabeth started producing children at a rate of knots, which made her a stay-at-home mother for the time she was laying in. It was quite common for women in the 1700s to have multiple children, as the mortality rate was quite high for infants. Most women who were able to conceive gave birth to around as many as 8 to 10 children during their childbearing days, knowing that quite likely only a fraction of them would make it past their early years. This was incredibly risky for women and a lot of them died from childbirth itself or its associated complications. Elizabeth was no different to her fellow women and she too found herself in the family way at an early age very soon after marriage and then seemingly continually pregnant for the majority of her life, giving birth to her last child when she was 41. She did end up giving birth to more than the average number of children for that time, however, having 16 children in total, but sadly only three of them survived, making it into adulthood, with the remaining 13 passing away. Her youngest child, a six-year-old daughter, was later sent to live with family away from home for reasons I've not been able to track down. But from what I can work out, the Brownrigs visited their daughter on weekends on trips to the countryside. After five years of living in rural Greenwich and with the family already suffering a few child bereavements, they decided a change of scenery was in order and they moved into the heart of London. By moving to where the action was, James would be able to get more work, 
Elizabeth could also do some odd jobs and begin training as a midwife. And given she had enough experience in being pregnant and delivering children, it made sense for her to go into the profession. The family moved to Fleur de Luce Court, which nowadays is in the area of Fleet Street in central London, and is now quite upmarket. But back in the 1760s, it was a deprived poor area stacked full of tenement housing with multi-occupancy households. This area of London fell under the parish of St Dunstan's in the west and over time Elizabeth found herself helping at the local workhouse, helping the women there as a midwife. Perhaps down to her own experience with pregnancy and birth, Elizabeth went into the profession of midwifery under the care of St Dunstan's and was said to be highly skilled at her new profession. As recognition for Elizabeth's bedside manner and tender demeanour towards her patients, she was asked by the parish of St Dunstan's in the West to be their chief midwife at their workhouse and to care for the pregnant women and new mothers that found themselves in such an awful situation. Elizabeth took well to her new promotion and was known for her kind and compassionate nature with her patients, seemingly having empathy for them for finding themselves in such a difficult situation as being forced to give birth, often against their will, and to soon be put back to work and the baby given away. Elizabeth was able to look beyond the women and girls' destitution and was reportedly quite charitably benevolent to those in the workhouse. And although this kindness and benevolence may have all been genuine, in the 1700s it was quite common for the flaws of society to be used to gain financial advantage from those that suffered as a result, and unfortunately Elizabeth was no different. Of course, working for charity earned Elizabeth hardly any money, so to bring in a more substantial income, she offered private midwifery for anyone who could afford it, and so the shame of having an illegitimate child could be metaphorically swept under the rug for a fee. Even birth had a stigma surrounding it, and women were forced to lay in during their birthing period, where they would essentially go into hiding until the whole horrid business was done with, and so they were away from the menfolk because, God forbid, they see the consequences of their own actions. Now, this is a weird, horrid little fact for you. The whole laying in business, and in fact laying down to give birth, didn't actually come into fashion until the 1700s. Before then, people sat down to give birth on birthing stools. It was due to the pervy French king, Louis XIV, who had a bit of a birth fetish and made his queens lie down so he could see everything happening during the process, which is, quite frankly, disgusting. But I can't say I'm surprised that it was thought up by a man, because of course it was. This posh way to push caught on, and for some reason this is still the preferred method today despite it being proven countless times by loads of scientific studies that it's not ideal for a good swift delivery. In fact, lying down can prolong the whole arduous affair and make it more painful, so time to bring back birthing stools. In a time before family planning was invented... Many women who found themselves in the family way, who didn't want to be, had no other option but to hide their pregnancies, give birth in private, and then hand over their newborn to someone for them to take care of it. This promise was usually a financial agreement, which the mother would pay for, thinking the child would be looked after up until old enough to be put to work, but quite often the newborn would be disposed of shortly after the mother had left, and the assigned caregiver would keep the cash without the outlay of having another mouth to feed. 
Whether these mothers knew that what was happening is undetermined, but when there was no other form of birth control, there was no other option for these desperate women who couldn't afford to care for a child long term. Word began to spread that Elizabeth may have been in the profession of baby farming, but none of this was ever proven, and she would later deny she ever did anything to the children in her care. But given that so many of her own children died, it does seem highly suspicious that she didn't at least play some part in their death. I'm not saying it's 100% true, but it just seems a little fishy is all I'm saying. With the negative word of mouth getting around... Elizabeth began to slow down on the private laying in she'd been offering for women at her home, and it was time to find another area of society to exploit, so she headed back to the workhouse to see what she could cook up next. Other exploitative get-rich-quick schemes were bountiful in the Georgian period, and so Elizabeth took advantage of another parish-offered scheme. If she took on apprentices from the workhouse... Each parish would pay her £5 for each one apprenticed, which is around £180 today. They would also pay for their bed and board and anything else they may require during their schooling within the household, all of which went directly into Elizabeth's pocket. This worked out well for the Brownrigg family, as effectively they had free servants under the guise of teaching them. Before long, the Brownrigg family gained the system and took on three different apprentices from three different parishes, which as a low-income household would have really helped to pay the bills and they now had free help around the house. It was a win-win situation for the Brownriggs, but for the poor girls they apprenticed, things were about to go horribly wrong. The three apprentices were Mary Mitchell from St Dunstan's Workhouse, Mary Jones from the Foundling Hospital, which was basically an orphanage, and Mary Clifford from Whitefriars Precinct, a trio of Marys, all of whom would suffer at the hands of the Brownrigg family. The apprentices were bound to the household, an old term which meant once they were under their apprenticeship, they had to stay for two years. When later questioned, the Brownriggs neighbours were confused as to why there were three apprentices in the household, as both of their professions weren't the type that, well, suited apprentices. After all, house painting was a jobbing business at best, and Elizabeth, being a midwife, wasn't something she could apprentice by herself, as it was something she'd been taught. So overall, the employment of the girls was very fishy indeed, and reeked of scammy behaviour. After just two months of apprenticing at the Brown Rigs, the first alarm bell about the slovenly situation the girls were living in was sounded by Mary Jones when one very early morning she came stumbling back into the grounds of the Foundling Hospital, a mile and a half away from the Brown Rigs' home. Mary Jones, who was just 15, was bloodied and bruised and gladly accepted readmission to the Foundling Hospital, which was also said to be overcrowded and not a fantastic place to live but it was better than being turned into a workhouse. Mary was asked why she'd left her post and explained that she'd been badly abused, starved and beaten by her employers and her body was all the evidence they needed to draw a case against James Brownrigg, the man who had agreed to apprentice her. James was instantly visited by the Foundling Hospital solicitor and ordered to pay a fee for the abuse he'd carried out on the girl and return the payment he'd received for her apprenticeship. 
Mary was then released from her bounding agreement with the Brown Regs and went back to living at the Foundling Hospital, which for anyone confused as to why she was living in a hospital, hospital back then meant hospitality, so like being kept under the hospitable care of the Foundling. Once Mary had been released from her bounding agreement, the real truth came out about how and why she'd escaped, and it painted a dark picture of what was going on under the Brownrigs roof. The first fortnight of Mary Jones's apprenticeship had been okay. She'd been given a bed, fed and watered, and treated reasonably, as much as an apprentice in a poor household could expect. But it didn't take long before the abuse started to creep up and began escalating quickly. Firstly, her creature comforts were taken away. She was given cold water to wash in only and told to do so outside in the yard during the depths of winter. Her bed was then taken away and replaced with a bag of straw under a dresser in the kitchen. During the whole time she was being apprenticed, in inverted commas, she was often whipped, tied up, beaten around the head, neck and face. Particularly brutal attacks ranged from being beaten whilst tied to ceiling beams or chairs and often forced to remove her clothing. Both Elizabeth and James would carry out these vicious attacks, but Elizabeth was said to be particularly cruel to her. When using all three Marys for free labour, she would ask them to scrub floors and stairs, and if the job wasn't carried out to the standards she required, she would dunk the girls' heads in the dirty water repeatedly and threaten them with drowning. After one of these particularly cruel attacks, Mary Jones waited until the household was asleep before making an escape. The household slept in one room, and so getting out without being noticed would be a great task. However, somewhat luckily for Mary Jones, she didn't have a bed. She slept under the dresser in the kitchen, and this lack of comfort would actually work in her favour, as this was a decent enough distance from the Brownrigg's bed, and so she could quietly make an escape without making too much noise. Unlike the two other girls, she wasn't locked away, something which would happen on a regular basis to make sure the girls didn't steal food when they were starving. This gave poor cramped and cold Mary Jones an opportunity from her straw bed under the dresser that she took full advantage of. Mary waited until Mr and Mrs Brownrigg and their son James were sound asleep before quietly creeping out from under the dresser. She then put on her clothes and took the front door key which was always kept near the front door. She quietly and carefully unlatched the door, turned the key in the lock and ran away into the night. Not knowing the area of London she was in and never having really left the confines of the Foundling Hospital where she lived from an early age, she ran blindly into the darkness until she was a safe distance from the Brownrigg's home. Once the 15-year-old felt safe enough, she asked some locals the way to the Foundling and they pointed her in the right direction. Mary eventually arrived there in the early morning after getting lost a few times and was instantly admitted and the Brownrigs were outed as having caused her abuse. With Mary Jones now free and clear of the horrors of the Brownrigg home, this now left the two remaining apprentices to take the flack and things only got worse. Mary Clifford was the third apprentice to have been taken on at the Brownrigg household Mary had found herself in the parish workhouse at Whitefriars Precinct after her mother had died suddenly and her father James Clifford instantly found himself burdened with several young children and he didn't know what to do. 
Pair that with a new marriage looming, and it wasn't long before the Clifford children were all sent to the workhouse and abandoned by their father. Excellent parenting there. And unfortunately, things were only going to get worse for poor Mary C. After a short while in the workhouse, Mary Clifford was assigned to James Brownrigg as an apprentice and moved into his home. Again, it only took a very short while for the abuse to begin, and before long, Mary was in a bad way. When Mary's mother-in-law, who I actually suspect given the records I've found to be more likely her grandmother on her mother's side, who lived out of London in the country, found out about her daughter's death and the children subsequently being dumped in a parish workhouse, she was up in arms. However, she'd received a letter from the Brownrigg's neighbour who said that she must pay the girl a visit as she was very concerned for her well-being. As it so happened, the Brownrigg's had bought themselves a pig to keep in their yard and as such had made a pen for it. Keeping a pig in a closed yard obviously became quite smelly quite quickly and so there was a large skylight over the yard which had to be opened for ventilation and this now meant that the next-door neighbours could see clearly into their property. The neighbours, bakers that went by the name of Mr and Mrs Deacon, had said their son, who had been idly looking out into the backyard one morning, had noticed one of the apprentice girls tied up next to the pig pen. She was naked, beaten, battered and bruised. Little Deacon dutifully told his mum and dad, and so they set about notifying the girl's grandmother slash mother-in-law. How they did that, I don't know, but some excellent detective work on their part. Well done, Deacon family. Mary's family member tracked her down to the workhouse, found out the address of where she'd been sequestered to, and went to visit the Brownrigg's home. When she got to the address, a neighbour, who wasn't the deacons, had been forewarned that there may be a visit at some point looking for the girl, had bribed them to say there were no apprentices at the Brownrigg's address, and the door went unanswered when she knocked. Now, really pissed off at what was going on, Mary's gran stormed back to the workhouse and demanded that someone find Mary or else all hell was going to break loose and she was going to tell the mayor about the parish's incompetence if they didn't find Mary quick sharp. Eventually, the staff at Whitefriars went with her to the Brownrigg household and after a long period of being told the girl didn't live there, they eventually produced Mary Mitchell. Not falling for this, the interrogation crew pushed further and after more back and forth and arguing and threats of being shopped into the Lord Mayor, eventually they produced Mary Clifford after the Brownrigg's son brought her to the group. They were shocked at the awful condition she was in. As it turns out, Mary C had been stuffed inside a cupboard and kept in the cramped dark space for days on end. She'd been shoved in the horrid little prison after being found scavenging for food in the kitchen as the Brownrigs had starved her. However, her body told a much worse story. This wasn't just a girl that had been kept in a cupboard without food. She'd been horribly beaten to within an inch of her life. Mary's body was covered in cuts, bruised all over. She had several infected large wounds. Her mouth and neck were swollen and she couldn't close her lips. Her eyes were also so bruised she couldn't open them. It was obvious Mary needed instant medical attention and that those that had been looking after her were in very big trouble. All the while this furore was going on and Mary C was being tended to, Elizabeth Brownrigg had managed to make herself scarce, packed a very quick bag and made an escape. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mary Clifford was sent straight to a surgeon to be cared for, and Mary Mitchell was removed from the home for her safety and sent back to St. Dunstan's in the West. When Mary Clifford was accepted into care by the surgeon, he said she was in a very dangerous way, effectively saying he didn't think she was going to survive her extensive injuries. Mary Mitchell, whilst not as badly injured as Mary Clifford, was also in intolerable agony from the wounds she'd accrued at the hands of the Brownrigg family. When arriving back at St Dunstan's, she was given fresh clothing, but in removing her dirty and stained rags, the wounds she did have that were healing had stuck to the cloth she was wearing, making the removal of them incredibly and agonisingly painful. After an apothecary was called to tend to Mary Mitchell, he took one look at her wounds and referred her to the nearest hospital. Now with the two girls in such a state, the appropriate punishment had to be found for the Brownrigs. In the day and age before the police force had been created, such punishments were carried out by local authorities. James Brownrigg had been captured at the home after the discovery of Mary C and carried to the nearby jail in Wood Street to be taken before a magistrate the next day. But both Elizabeth and her son, who was left behind at the home, had made a run for it, taking with them the valuables of the house, leaving James, they thought, to bear the brunt of the punishment for the crimes. James was taken before the magistrate the next day and the two Marys were also taken to court to show their battered and bruised bodies. Mary Clifford was seemingly very unwell by this point and could barely speak, only able to answer yes or no. She was slumped in a chair and couldn't stand to testify. Mary Mitchell was able to stand and deliver her evidence to the jury and she explained how her, Mary J and Mary C had been routinely beaten and abused for minor things such as their cleaning not being up to the Brownrigg standards. She explained how both of them were often shoved into the coal cellar together, starved and refused water. However, as she was unwell, she only gave a partial statement enough for the jury to know this was a case that had to go to trial. After the girls were seen in court, James was sent back into jail and a warrant was put out for Elizabeth and John to be apprehended as the trial couldn't go ahead without them. The manhunt for the gruesome twosome was on and now the story had infiltrated the papers, infecting London with the information about the cruelties the poor girls had suffered. The local area was up in arms and the Brownrigs would only be able to hide for so long. Any place that the Brownrigs had a connection with was searched and the residents questioned, 
A residence in Hertfordshire where Elizabeth's six-year-old daughter was being cared for was searched and watched, but she didn't appear there. After a few days of unsuccessful hunting, the following advert was circulated in the papers. Whereas Elizabeth, the wife of James Brownrigg, painter of Fleur de Luce Court, Fleet Street, stands charged on oath with cruelly treating two apprentice girls so that their lives are in great danger. Whoever will apprehend her so that she may be brought to justice shall have ten guineas reward of the overseers of the parish of St Dunstan's in the West. She is middle-sized, she is of a swarthy complexion, near fifty years of age, had on a yellow gown striped and followed the practice of midwifery. And whoever will apprehend John Brownrigg, her son, a youth of a pale complexion, dark hair, very slim, about 19 years of age, by trade a painter, who also stands charged on oath, with being accessory to the said cruel treatment, shall have two guineas reward, to be paid by the overseers aforesaid. In the meantime, since the manhunt was on, sadly Mary Clifford had succumbed to her injuries and passed away at St Bartholomew's Hospital. The surgeon looking after her said she'd developed a fever and passed away not long after she was admitted. Back before they knew what infection was, it seems likely that 15-year-old Mary died from a raging infection to her multiple wounds. This meant that the abuse case had now suddenly turned into a murder trial, and as such, the advert placed in the newspaper was updated with the following paragraph. As Mary Clifford, one of the aforesaid apprentice girls, died this morning, it is necessary to caution all persons from harbouring or in any wise concealing the above-mentioned Elizabeth and John Brownrigg, as whoever harbours or conceals them shall be prosecuted with the utmost severity of the law. Whilst Elizabeth and John were on the run and James left languishing in jail, the coroner's inquest was carried out for Mary Clifford's death. Mary Mitchell also gave evidence and before long, the jury had delivered a verdict of willful murder against the deceased. Also under suspicion up until this point had been the youngest child of the Brownriggs, William, but Mary Mitchell cleared his name and he was released of any wrongdoing and sent to be under the care of a workhouse until the whole tawdry affair of the case was over. Once again, the advert was run in newspapers and this time a handsome reward of 25 guineas, about 1,500 in today's money, was offered for the pair's capture. Having seen the advertisements in the paper, the Brownriggs decided to buy two seats on the Dover stagecoach, but realising they could easily be discovered and apprehended trying to leave the country, they thought better of it. Instead, they decided to take up residence posing as husband and wife at a Chandler's shop in Wandsworth, taking a room where they shared a bed. Given that John was 19 and Elizabeth was in her late 40s, the pair must have looked ridiculous, but money is money and someone was happy enough to put them up in return for a fee. After a few days of them living above the shop, their new landlord, Mr Dunbar, happened to read the wanted notice in the paper and realised the two people he had lodging in his house were very similar in description. However, he was not 100% certain as the clothing they were said to be wearing wasn't the same. In the days before fast fashion, people usually had one or two sets of clothes, and so changing them or obtaining new ones was not easy. But the Brownriggs had managed to obtain clothing and swap out their old togs for new ones on their escape adventure thus far, and this simple switcheroo was enough to throw Mr Dunbar off, 
but he was fairly certain their likenesses were a spitting image of the crude drawings he'd seen in the paper. Mr Dunbar travelled the six miles to the centre of town and alerted Mr Owen to the church warden, who placed the wanted notice looking for the pair. Mr Dunbar had to interrupt Mr Owen whilst he was at church and after regaling him with the tale of his new lodgers and their appearance, Owen was convinced that this must be the elusive Brownriggs. But Owen knew he couldn't just swoop in on the off chance, he'd have to provide a credible witness to recognise the pair. He enacted the help of the Deacon family and asked them to accompany the constable for Wandsworth, Mr John Wingrave, to the Chandler's shop. The deacons would be able to give an instant confirmation if the suspects were indeed the Brownrigs or not, and if this was the unlikely duo, they could instantly be apprehended and brought to trial. So off they went to the shop. Mr Dunbar let them in quietly, and Mr Wingrave went upstairs first, so as to not startle them. If they'd seen the familiar faces of the deacons, they would have known exactly what was going on, and seeing as they'd fled before, they could likely do it again. Once held in the room, the deacons were brought up and they gave a positive identification of both Elizabeth and John. The pair were apprehended and bundled into a hackney coach and taken to the Poultry Jail, a place usually reserved for minor criminals, but on this occasion used as it was simply the nearest and least full prison at that very moment. Mr Dunbar was paid a few days later, the full reward of 25 guineas for the information which led to the Brownrigg's capture, and also Mrs Brownrigg made sure to leave the remainder of her rent behind to see that their bed and board were paid for, as otherwise this would have only been added onto her list of crimes. The deacons, despite their assistance in identifying the criminals, rode in the cab with Elizabeth and John, and whilst on this ride, Elizabeth was clearly concerned with getting her affairs in order. She said the deacon should make sure the house was kept for her son William and not rented out to others. The deacons, being absolute saints, agreed to this so that William could eventually have a property of his own, as ultimately he was innocent in all of this. Once at the poultry jail, both John and Elizabeth found themselves suddenly realising what was going to happen to them now they'd been caught. For this offence, they would surely hang for their crimes. Elizabeth had a seizure at the jail and John refused any food. Both of them had to be kept at the poultry jail until they were well enough to be sent to the worst place in the whole of London, Newgate Jail. Over the next few days at court, the jury heard how both John and Elizabeth had beaten all three Marys from evidence given by Mary Mitchell and Mary Jones. In this evidence, the girls said that quite often, John was instructed to beat the girls for taking food which didn't belong to them both of which said they had to take any scraps they could find, including a few discarded chestnut husks. The jury also heard how sometimes these beatings were carried out by John of his own accord, and seemingly under no duress to do so by either of his parents. Back at the poultry jail, Elizabeth was continuing to have fits whilst behind bars, and was seen by an apothecary who eventually ruled that she was fit and well enough to be transported to Newgate. As word had spread about the trial... The Georgians, particularly those from the local community, were outraged at the cruel treatment of the girls, and as word had spread about Elizabeth being transferred, the angry mob grew outside to see the monster woman for themselves. Elizabeth had to be loaded straight from the door of the poultry jail into the back of the cab to avoid her being taken by the mob. In the meantime, as it was still undecided how best to treat the son, John, he was sent to Wood Street, where his father was. 
Whilst Elizabeth was in Newgate, she was suffering greatly. She was having often violent seizures and in between times seemed incredibly depressed. Having looked into this further, and in no way do I have any medical knowledge so I'm not officially diagnosing her, but it seems to me like Elizabeth may have had epilepsy and the stress of her situation was exacerbating this which was leading to the seizures. In Newgate, Elizabeth was visited by her arresting constable, Mr Wingrave. In her cell, the pair had a conversation about Elizabeth's fate and that it was looking likely that she would be executed and then sent for medical dissection, a practice that was used as punishment for the most depraved criminals. And then their skeletons were proudly displayed as a prominent reminder to anyone who saw them to think twice about committing anything heinous or else they'd end up in the same place. As a religious woman, Elizabeth was horrified that she would be denied a proper Christian burial and her body dissected the talk of which brought on yet another convulsive seizure. After a month, James Brownrigg was also sent to Newgate, and then shortly after, so was John. All three were set to stand trial together at the Old Bailey, and their fate would be sealed. The trial began on the 12th of September. Mary Mitchell, now 16, was the first primary witness, and she gave evidence which recounted how she found herself in the Brownwigs' care and how she had endured almost two years of abuse at their hands for the most minor and often made-up misdemeanours. The jury were astounded to hear such cruel recantations of torture, including being attached to doorways for days by a chain around her neck with her hands above her head, being often left outside naked in the cold and being locked in cupboards with the other Mary over the weekend whilst the family went away, leaving them with no food or water. After the testimony, Elizabeth was allowed to give a short defence in which she stated she never meant for the girls to come to any harm, but she did admit to beating them on occasion when their work wasn't up to her standards. Then it was James Brownrigg's turn to defend himself. He called several character witnesses, who all, of course, spoke very highly of him. It was quite common back in the day to pay people to give you a good character reference in court. Mary also testified that she didn't ever see James beat Mary Clifford personally. It was always Elizabeth or John, but she did confirm she had been abused by both men. Now, after this was heard by the jury, Elizabeth confirmed that she had actually been carrying out a lot of the severe beatings on Mary Clifford whilst James was out of the house and that John was her instructed accomplice. It's highly probable that James knew what was going on at home, but he chose to turn a blind eye to it. After all, we know he was no saint. Mary Mitchell helped to condense the case into something more succinct by backing this up, and this allowed James to be let off the hook. What I suspect actually occurred here was that James Brownrigg gave Mary M a nice little backhander, telling her to state Elizabeth was solely responsible for the beatings. This now left the jury to decide on what they thought was the best outcome for the case, and they went away to deliberate. Returning, they delivered that James and John were not guilty, and that Elizabeth was guilty. However, both men weren't allowed to go free. They were reprimanded for abuse charges against Mary Mitchell instead, but not the murder of Mary Clifford. Elizabeth was sentenced to death and dissection, her worst fear, and was set to be executed just five days later. The sentiment in the court was a messy one. Both the men were relieved they were freed from the death penalty, but the wife and mother they knew would be sent to the Tyburn tree to pay for the crimes which happened under their roof, 
and quite likely at their hands as well as hers. People in the court wept for the sorrow of the men, but outside the crowd can be happier with the guilty verdict and they cheered when it was delivered to them. Before her execution, Elizabeth admitted to a visiting friend that she had taken the brunt of the crime upon her shoulders to free the rest of her family. Whilst awaiting her fate in Newgate, she said to a friend that she had indeed carried out the worst of the beatings on poor Mary Clifford, and that in fact the plan was to take Mary to a doctor in the country, the idea of James, to make sure she could heal in private and not get Elizabeth into trouble, saving the whole family. But the deacon's boy seeing Mary in the yard put paid to that plan, leaving them no other choice but to hand over the girl and make a run for it. On the morning of Elizabeth's execution, the 14th of September, 1767, she was allowed to see James and John one last time and they were allowed to say their goodbyes. They prayed together for two hours in the Newgate Chapel and then the men were taken back to prison where they were still serving their time for the abuse charge. Elizabeth was to be executed publicly at the Tyburn Tree. She was loaded into a cart and driven there from Newgate. Along the way, thousands of people lined the streets to see her make her last journey to the gallows. The crowd was so immense, some people were crushed in the melee, and pickpockets took advantage of the macabre spectators, slipping through the bickering crowds. People threw things at her, screamed curses, and begged those accompanying her to rip off her large hat so they could see her face, which was being obscured by its wide brim. Perhaps in a state of fear and shock, Elizabeth appeared calm and resolute to those looking to get one last rise out of the woman they deemed to be a monster. In the cart, she was driven to the Tyburn tree, a triple scaffold, and a noose placed around her neck. She was invited to join in prayer, which she did, and then the time came. Just before she was executed, she said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and then the driver given the signal to gallop the horse away, leaving her hanging. Elizabeth was kept on the noose for around 30 minutes and then cut down. Her body was given away for medical dissection, a death mask of her face made, and once she had been dissected, her skeleton was boiled and stripped before being reconstructed and put on display at the Royal College of Surgeons right next door to Newgate. Both James and John were given sentences of just three months for their part in the crimes and ordered to pay a small fine of six shillings each, so around £50 in today's money. When both men were released, both went back to house painting. However, calm as a bitch, and James fell three stories whilst on the job and died a few years later. John, however, changed his name to John Browning and continued on with life without seemingly too much bother. He married and continued being a house painter. The murder of Mary Clifford was definitely completely avoidable, and had there been any checks carried out, it would have been quite obvious to the average person that apprentices weren't required at the Brownrigg household. Given Elizabeth's previous suspicions of child abuse as well, it should have been a simple spot to work out that this was not a place where children should be living. The strangest thing for me is that Elizabeth never gave a solid reason for why she carried out the crimes and seemingly just carried out her frustrations on the poor girls to satiate her own internal anger. Was Elizabeth right to let the full blame fall on her or should she have spread the responsibility? 
It's highly likely that Elizabeth was also a victim of the men's abuse too, and so manipulated she felt she had no other choice but to admit full guilt. In a time where society was so desperately failing women, it's hard to look kindly at two men walking away from the situation without paying fully for their crimes and Elizabeth shouldering the full blame. But ultimately, it's like an execution-led trolley problem. Send yourself to the gallows and save two, or speak up and see your family swing alongside you. As with a lot of these cases, it's messy, complicated and nuanced and tricky to unpick. This leads me neatly on to how I found out about this case. I went to see the exhibition Executions, 700 Years of Public Executions at the Museum of London Docklands, and I saw for myself the death mask of Elizabeth Brownrigg staring at me from one of the displays, and I instantly had to know more about this woman. I then saw the correlating etching of her skeleton and knew that if she'd been given medical dissection as a punishment, she must have done something absolutely awful. I was lucky enough to be recently invited along by the Museum of London to go and explore this exhibition after dark and to have a tour by the curators and seeing it a second time with a knowledgeable guide was so much more illuminating and I found out even more than the first time round I went and I cannot recommend it enough. Now, if you'd like to go and see the exhibition for yourself at the Museum of London Docklands, which includes a recreation of the Tyburn tree so you can see for yourself this horrifying structure, they've given me a lovely little discount code for you. If you book tickets using the discount code CHOPCHOP, that's all in capitals, no spaces in between, so C-H-O-P-C-H-O-P, then you'll get 20% off your tickets. They also have some evening events planned in March too, so you can go to a variety of talks and even go after dark too, which I think is the best way to see the exhibition. I'm not being sponsored by them to say any of this either. I just think you don't often get the chance to see such an eye-opening exhibition, and I think it honestly is one of the best things I've seen in a long time in a macabre way. It's on till I think mid-April, just check their website for details. Thanks for joining me for this episode. As always, I'd love to know your thoughts on this one and please leave me a comment and a thumbs up on YouTube or a rating on your podcast provider. If you're new around here and you've not yet subscribed, I'd love for you to join the Ghoul Gang. We're a friendly bunch, so do come and join us. Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I make, then why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing top-tier legendary executive Patreon producers Amy, Christina, Christoph, Jess, Karen, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, V and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. There's been a little flurry of new patrons recently, so I really appreciate it. Thanks for signing up. Don't forget to check out all of the other links in the support me section too. There's one-off donation links, there's merch links for the shop as well, so you can get yourself some little goodies. And also Ko-Fi or coffee or whatever you want to call it. That's all in the description too. All support is 100% vital for me being able to continue making the show. And thanks from the very, very bottom of my heart for even considering doing so. And you're a wonderful human for doing it. And if you want to grab a discount code as well, if you sign up on Patreon, you get discounts off merch. So it really does make all the difference. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Can we just take a moment for these nails? Aren't they beautiful? Oh yeah, springtime is sprung.
it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.